<clears throat> so saints, we are continuing in our studies in Christology, and <clears throat> we're not going to focus primarily on uh, the person and work of Christ per se, although all of this comes from the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're going to look at, and this might be our last time, maybe we'll do one more um, <clears throat> next Sunday evening on <clears throat> the uh, habits and the virtues, but um, we're going to extend our lesson on uh, the virtues and the habits uh, that we have acquired through or by the Holy Spirit. Um, last time we were together, which was two weeks ago, we looked at the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, and what they do for us. Why do we need them? Um, and when we talk about the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, it's something that we don't talk about as much. Uh, ethics in general, uh, moral theology is not something that we talk about as much as we should. And I'm saying that we more so Protestant reform people don't talk about um, the virtues as much as we should. Um, while if you were to read uh, some later works from the 16th century, 17th century, um, and prior to that, all they talked about with regard to sanctification was the virtues, how to live a moral and godly life. Uh, what happens after we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and even faith itself? Uh, where are we to put that into um, uh, what type of category are we to put that in? <clears throat> and um, when we talk about the virtues, uh, we see, and this is going to be a little bit of... Um, um, a review, but we see in uh, the Westminster Larger Catechisms, question 77, it says, where do justification and sanctification differ? Uh, so what's the difference between us having a right standing before God and God changing us to be like Christ? In other words, what's the difference between us having, because of belief in Christ, a perfect standing before God, and also now, in light of having that standing before the Father, what is God doing to us now? What's the difference? And it says, although sanctification be inseparably enjoined with justification, yet they differ in that God in justification imputes the righteousness of Christ. So again, in justification, you get what Luther calls an alien righteousness. You get a righteousness that's not of your own. You get a standing before God. Uh, your bank account goes from negative to now positive. Okay, But in sanctification... So that is that process of becoming like Christ, that process by which you began at the moment of conversion and it will end uh, when we have that beatific vision. In sanctification, his spirit infuses grace and enableth to the exercise thereof. Um, and I was, I was doing some more research on even our own confession of faith when it talks about good works. I believe in paragraph three, it speaks of the Holy Spirit enabling us to do good works. So the Holy Spirit uh, infuses into the soul, infuses is just another, it's just a fancy word of saying poured out, pours into our soul grace for what? To enable us, to motivate us. Um, we just read uh, in our catechism question, um, when we talk about us believing in Christ, it is our belief. God gives to us his grace to believe, the spirit to believe, but God doesn't believe for us. 
you notice our catechism question, it says that God moves us to believe. He aids us to believe, right? <clears throat> so the Spirit enables us to the works, to do the work of God. And what's the first work of God that we can't do? Believe. Okay? This infusion of grace, um, John Owen says, is a new, gracious, spiritual life or principle created and bestowed on the soul. So you're going to see that this infusion of grace is really the principle by which we live by. It says, whereby it is changed in all of its faculties and affections, fitted and able to go forth in a way of obedience unto every divine object that is proposed unto it. So you have now what's called this habitus. Uh, you have essentially um, this principle within you where when something good is presented to you, that is, let's say, Sunday morning, it's 8 o'clock, you're very, very tired, but you know you need to go to church. That's presented to you, and now you have this habitus, this habit of either um, um, saying, yes, I will go to church, or no, I won't go to church. But you have this now, this this uh, principle within you to actually do the will of God. As before, you did not have the principle within you to do the will of God. Why? Because you never believed uh, in God by faith. Um, so God gives to us grace and he begins to change us from within. And so when we think about salvation, salvation is, yes, receiving a righteousness that's out of our own, but also it's being changed and being conformed into the very righteousness of Christ. It is becoming literally like Christ. That is what the Holy Spirit is doing to us now. He's conforming us and changing all of our faculties and members within our souls. And how does the Holy Spirit do that? Well, apart from um, the other, what we call cardinal virtues and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we see the theological virtues um, is what is given to us to enable us to live like God. And we get these theological virtues from Paul's words to the, uh, the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, when he says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, but then I will know fully, just as also, or just as I also have been fully known. But now, faith, hope, and love remain. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So the Apostle Paul sums up um, our life in Christ by faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love is what's going to, if we're going to be on a, imagine us on a boat. Faith, hope, and love is what carries us. Um, from this earthly realm to our our heavenly home. Okay? Faith, hope, and love enable us to live like God. You want to be more like Christ? Then faith, hope, and love is um, that which we have to ask God to hyphen every single day. Um, now, these uh, theological virtues, again, for review, why are they called theological? Well, simply put, because you cannot acquire them by your own strength. Usually, a habit is something that we can acquire upon our own strength. Uh, a person can become courageous by doing more courageous things. Um, 
you know, my mother is very giving. Um, it seems like she came out the womb just being very giving. However, we know that's not the case. Um, the more time you give, or the more, uh, the more, the more chances you give, or you have the, the chance to give, uh, the more it's going to become like second nature to give. Right? The, the more it's like, you know, it's just what I do. Uh, the more you go to the gym, uh, it's harder for you not to go to the gym. Right? However, when it comes to the theological virtues, we cannot, by our own strength, believe in God. We all know that, right? Upon our own strength, we cannot read the Bible and reason to God unless we're being aided by divine grace, okay? Along as well with hope and as well as love. Uh, we cannot do these things in relation to God. Why? Because in and of ourselves, we cannot. We are sinners. But these theological virtues, what they do is uh, they heighten our natural and human capacities to do what we cannot do, to have faith, hope, and love, to have our object as God, and have our final end as God. Okay? The virtues allow us to have our object as God and our final end as God. The theological virtues then perfect the two highest powers within us. What makes us different than animals and plants? Our intellect and will. That's what makes us distinct from animals and plants. So what happens then in the theological virtues is they raise up and they transform our natural faculties of intellect and will to be directed to God. Because naturally, our intellect, our minds, and our wills, what we do, are not directed to God. I mean... We know that, right? Before we were saved, did you do anything for God's own sake? No. None of us did. We did everything for the sake of ourselves. But even now, is an example of you doing something for the sake of God. You sitting here, uh, senior's hot. <laughs> um, many of you, I'm sure, are a little, are a little toasty. Um, and it might be uncomfortable. But regardless of that, you were doing these things for God. Senior, I didn't mean to put you, but, you were right there, you looked at me, and it was a good example, um, I think. So, um, when we talk about, when we talk about the doing things for God, um, even now, saints, God has enabled you to do something that in, in your natural state, in Adam, you would not want to do. Okay? You would not want to do. So this evening, I want us to consider the theological virtues and how they relate to the doctrine of God, specifically how they relate to the Trinity indwelling us as believers. So, the theological virtues, if you're taking notes, and the indwelling of the Trinity within our souls. This is something that I, I, I taught uh, the men at the race a couple months ago. Um, but it's fun, something that's very near and dear to my heart very near and dear to my heart. And that is to say, if someone was asked you or to tell you, Saint, do you know that God dwells within you? You're going to say, of course, the Spirit indwells within me. But what would they say? But no, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit indwell within you. Uh, that might be a shocker to many of you. 
not just that the Holy Spirit, which is good enough, but the Father and the Son indwell the soul of the believer. Now, that alone is pretty, uh, pretty crazy, is it not? To say that the three persons of the Trinity, right now, currently, if I am a believer in Christ, indwell in my soul? Well, um, this is something, saints, that we need to understand. Because when we are saved, our relation to God is not merely one of now being a sinner, or was a sinner, and now a saint. But now, because of uh, love and faith and hope and these virtues and all the other things that the Spirit gives to us, we are now friends with God. We are now friends with God. You see, there is now a, 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 a closer proximity to us and God because of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, but also the Son and the Father. I used this example last time we're together, but if you were to read someone like Aristotle, and then when it was asked to Aristotle, can man ever be friends with God? He said, no, of course not. Because man and God are so distant from one another. God wants nothing to do with man, because why? Because man and God have nothing in common. They're not alike. But what we see when we believe in God is that now, not only are we uh, um, inheritors of heaven, but also God indwells within us. He, he closes that proximity. And he dwells into the hearts and souls of us. This is, I don't know about you, this is amazing. This is something that um, the Reformed, uh, I don't think... Um, Speak, speak, speak as much on, as much as they should, I should say. We have, we do a wonderful job of speaking about the Trinity itself, right? There is one God in three persons. And we'll talk a little bit more about the Trinity in a minute. But what about the practical aspect of the Trinity other than this is the God whom we worship? Rather than this is the God whom we worship, but also the God who indwells you. Who indwells you. And I'm going to argue that God doesn't just indwell us, but also he gives to us um, and he impresses upon us an, an evidence of his indwelling. And we're going to see that in just a few. Athanasius said, when the spirit is in us, the word also who gives the spirit is in us. And in the word is the father. In other words, what Athanasius is saying is, if the Holy Spirit is in us, then the son's in us. And if the son is in us, and the Father is in us. Um, this is a testimony of Scripture. John fourteen twenty three. Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will follow my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. And a few verses prior, Christ talks about the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer. So here, Jesus Christ is saying, The Father and myself, will come and make our home in the believer. You know, this brings a whole new meaning of being the temple of God, right? Ephesians 3.17, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Then you be rooted and grounded in love. 1 John 2.5, But if anyone keeps his word, the love of God has been truly perfected in him. By this we know 
that we are in him, are in him. So the clear testimony of scripture, and we can do more biblical, do more biblical surveys on this, is that the three persons of the Trinity indwell the soul of the believer. You see, because it's not just the son does something apart from the spirit and the father, but rather when the spirit comes, you better believe that the son and the father are there as well. But saints, we must ask, what are the three persons doing within our souls? Okay, what are they doing within our souls? Are they just there um, just to be there? What are they doing? Well, I would argue it's not enough for the three persons to indwell us without there being some sort of assimilation, a likeness of our soul to the divine person that is sent. Okay, there must be a resemblance of my soul to the divine person. In other words, it is no use for the Trinity to indwell us without the, also the Trinity changing us from within and making us like the Trinity. Consider what Thomas Aquinas says. It's not enough for the creature to have a new relation to God of whatever sort. So, in other words, he's saying it's not enough for us to simply go from um, sinners to saints. There must also be some way by which the soul is drawn into the Holy Spirit himself as possessed. So that I really possess the Spirit and he really possesses me. Because of what is given to someone is possessed by him. Insofar as the divine person himself, by impressing his seal on our souls, grants us certain gifts by which we formerly enjoy the person, namely by love and wisdom. So in other words, just as a seal, when pressed into a hot wax, seals its image there. I'm sure, I mean, have you guys ever seen that before? You have an envelope and someone um, presses something hot um, on some wax and then puts it on the envelope. It's impressing an image upon the envelope. So now what you have is the envelope and what is being pressed on it, uh, there is a, um, um, a possession of the two. The envelope stays the envelope and the image stays the envelope. But there is a sharing there. There is a sharing there. <clears throat> so when a divine person, when he enters into the soul of the believer, he impresses his mark his image upon the believer. The Son and the Spirit grant us the gift of his presence within our souls. So friends, we have to ask, so if the Son and the Spirit, and yes, the Father, but let's just deal with the Son and the Spirit. If they grant us the gift of their presence, okay, if the Holy Spirit gives to you a gifting of his presence within you, we have to ask, what is the gift? What is the what is the um, what is the image? What is the seal? What's the hot wax that comes upon your soul? Okay, it's not the gift of tongues, right? It's not that you're able to um, know uh, every theological doctrine ever <laughs> that's ever been pinned. It's none of those things. Okay, the gifts by which the Holy Spirit, or the gifts by. Uh, the gifts that, the, that testify rather to the Holy Spirit and to the Son and the, and, the, and the Father, the Trinity indwelling within us is the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. Among others, but that is the main one. Okay? The gifts, what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit impress upon your soul that testify to their presence within your soul 
are the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. Okay? Through grace, the Son and the Spirit really indwell the soul of the believer and impress on the soul a likeness to the divine person's mode of procession. Okay, so stay with me here. Um, when we talk about processions, specifically um, the divine, the, 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 the Holy Trinity's um, mode of processions, okay? What we simply saying are this. A procession, when I, when I talk about a procession, it's simply a coming forth from another, okay? It's a coming forth from another. So just as uh, a child comes forth from two parents, okay? We can think of it like that and move it to the Trinity, but when we move it to the Trinity, you need to remove all of the creaturely aspects of what we just used. So, when a child comes forth from parents, we can say that there once was a child, or there once wasn't a child, and now there is a child. Okay? But all we're really using in this analogy is just the the coming forth, the coming from someone. Okay? With regard to the doctrine of the Trinity, again, we remove all the creaturely ways in which we can talk about this. And we say that the Father comes from none. The Son comes forth from the Father. And the Spirit comes forth from the Father and the Son. That's it. Now, of course, I'm not going to do a big big thing on uh, whether or not there once was a time when there wasn't a son and now there was a son. No, it's an eternal coming forth. Okay? It never started, it never ended. I don't know how that happens, but that's what it is. Okay? Now, is there an analogy then? Is there any analogy that we can use to best understand this? Is there, an, is there a creaturely way in which we can understand the Son coming forth from the Father and the Spirit coming forth from the Father and the Son? Is there any creaturely analogy? Well, as I've said in the past, as Pastor Antonio once told me, I need to repent. Um, and as many say, there is no analogy that explains this. Yes, there is. There is an analogy. Okay? Um, it's called the psychological analogy. And it says this. The Son comes forth from the Father. So, how can we best describe the way the Son comes forth from the Father? In an analogous way to the act by which an intellect conceives a word as the fruit of its understanding. Okay. The Son comes forth from the Father in an analogous way to the act by which an intellect conceives a word as the fruit of its understanding. So let me give you an example of this. If I was to say, brother or sister, in one word, can you best describe who you are? One word. Can you describe who you are without any remainder? Without you saying, oh, of course, yes, I'm cute. <laughs> or something like that. I'm loving, I don't know. Um, but then you might say, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. But, but I'm also nice. No, well then you now have, that's two words. Is there one word that you can think of that best describes and encapsulates all who you are perfectly without remainder? We can't do it, right? We can't do it. But even now though, even when I told you, can you think of a word? I'm pretty sure some of you, in your minds, were starting to think of, hmm, 
What word best describes me? That word that, that comes forth from your intellect, that is the fruit of your thinking. Okay? Just as when you're thinking and you're saying, oh, uh, I can't think of the word. And then when you say the word, the word is the fruit of your thinking. Okay? So, in God then, the Father, who is a most perfect, supreme intellect, he understands himself by a single eternal act and so generates an eternal word. So, if the Father was to think of an image or a word that best describes him, it is the Son. This is why in John it says, um, or refers to Jesus Christ as the Word, the Word of God, okay? As a conception proceeding from this act of understanding, this Word that comes forth from the Father perfectly, without remainder, expresses the Father, Okay? Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. So to sum this up, we can say that Jesus Christ is the eternal word that is spoken of from the Father. So how does the Son come forth from the Father? By the word speaking forth his Son. Next we have the uh, procession of the Holy Spirit. And this is a procession according to the will. So if you were to think of one, so for instance, when I'm just, you know, when I'm driving or whatever and I think of my wife or think of my children, um, when I think of them, there is to be a, a good or some sort of loving uh, um, feeling toward them, okay? If that person is um, you know, sentimental toward you. And so what we have in the uh, um, the procession of the Holy Spirit, it is the Father knowing himself, which is the Son, and then loving himself, which is the Holy Spirit. The Father knowing himself, which is the Son, and then they loving themselves, which is the Holy Spirit. Okay? So the procession of the Holy Spirit is coming forth from the Father and the Son. And saints, if you're taking notes, you can say simply say this. What makes the Son the Son? Being the Word that comes forth from the Father. What makes the Spirit the Spirit? Him being the love that comes forth from the Father and the Son. If you're taking notes, circle Word and circle love. Okay? This is what our the Word of God says. Romans 5.5 5, And hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. And you can think of um, the many times when Paul is given these benedictions and he refers to the love, or he refers to the Holy Spirit as love. Love. The Holy Spirit proceeds as love. Um, so we have to ask that now. Now that we have these processions by word and by love, Okay. Um, what now is the likeness that these divine persons impress upon our soul? Since they, the Holy Spirit and the Son, since they come forth by way of word and by way of love, what is it that comes to our souls and that seals our souls? How do we know that the Trinity is dwelling within us? Because all we talked about is the processions. 
Okay. The seal and the son, or the seal and the presence of the Holy Spirit is going to be the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. Let's consider the son. Since the eternal son proceeds from the father, in an analogous way, a word proceeds from the intellect, we can say the son impresses upon the soul faith. That is the seal. That is the image. That is what the son gives to you. That testifies that he indwells you. It's faith. Okay? Or we can say the fruit of the son's indwelling is faith. Remember two weeks ago, we said that faith is not a subjective feeling. But faith is knowing and believing the truth. Knowing and believing the truth. Faith bestows upon us, what does faith do? It bestows upon us a new and higher light within the human so that we can know and believe what God has revealed to us in Christ. It gives to us a new and higher light. So gift is the, faith is the gift of illumination. And we can accredit this gift of faith and understanding to the Son indwelling the believer. To the Son indwelling the believer. And this was the Son's mission here on earth, is it not, was it not? John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus Christ comes as light to do what? To heal the darkened minds of his people. First are John 1, 9, the true light, which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. And we can go on on and talk about this, but um, this aspect of the mission of Christ. But we must say that the invisible mission of Christ, that is when Christ comes into our souls, is to enlighten us, to believe God. To believe God. Okay? This is what was preached by Pastor Antonio just a few weeks ago. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants. The Father gives to his Son, as man, a word. For what? To speak into the minds of his people. Right? And when the Father gives this word, it's not an acquired knowledge that Jesus Christ must search the Scriptures and then, after 33 years, he presents it. But it's an infused knowledge by which the Son knows God um, immediately. He knows the Word. And because He knows the Word, He's able to dispense to us the mysteries of the Word. Because of Adam's sin, our minds are darkened and ignorant of God's truth. Think about when you were not a Christian. Um, the things that your mom and dad told you. The things that your grandma might have told you. The things that the street preacher might have told you. All those things went, uh, went in through one ear and out the other. Your, your minds were darkened. But when Jesus gives to us faith, it bestows a new and higher light to us so that we can believe those things that we used to ignore. It heightens our minds. In fact, you can say that faith um, raises your natural capacities and supernaturally elevates you. To do what? First and foremost... To believe, to say yes 
That is true. And mind you, it's a knowing without further investigation. It's a knowing without having to look up philosophical arguments uh, that that uh, run counter to what's being presented to you. But it's a knowing that says, that sounds reasonable. Because, quite honestly, friends, to the natural mind, a woman who's never um, had relations with a man suddenly becoming pregnant, it's not reasonable. <laughs> a man being raised from the dead, even if he is God, is not reasonable to believe. One God in three persons is not reasonable to believe. I understand why all these atheists and Muslims have all these arguments against Christianity. But these are supernatural truths. And what faith does, it gives to us, it heightens our intellect so that we can know what prior we rejected and we can accredit this knowing to the Son who is the Word of God. He's the Word of God. Okay? Aquinas defines faith as a habit of the mind. Something that's given to us whereby eternal life is begun in us. Making the intellect assent, and I love this, to what is non-apparent. Raising us up, right, to what was formerly kept us down. Heightens our minds. The sun raises us up, elevates the human mind to believe past our capacity in our fallen state. So friends, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. And that's the evidence of the Son within you. That's the evidence of the Son within you. What about the Holy Spirit then? What about the Holy Spirit? Since the Holy Spirit is the love that proceeds from the Father and the Son, then the gift of the Spirit, what He impresses upon the soul, are the theological virtues of hope and love. Of hope and love. Because of Adam's sin, we have inherited malice and egoism. We desire our own will above ours, um, above others. Um, and also, we love ourselves more than we love others. We do not love God or love neighbor. But what the theological gift of hope does is that it raises our wills. That is to say, it raises our movements so that we can place our trust entirely upon God. We can now walk the narrow road. We can now walk towards heaven. But also, love raises up and purifies our will so that our actions now are done with a clear and pure and godly conscience. So that the good works that we produce are done in faith and to the glory of God. That's what love does. Love purifies our actions, our motives, okay? So we can cease to love the things of this world and love God and neighbor. So the mission of the Holy Spirit is to inflame the will of the believers with the love of God. For what? To do the will of God. To love God and do the will of God. We can say that the Holy Spirit causes us to move based off the knowledge that the Son impresses upon our intellect. See how there's a great uh, harmony here? What we know, right, informs what we do. What we know informs the way we act and whom we doing this action for, not for ourselves, but for God, right? 
So saints, again, has there ever been a time when you have done the will of God? Has there ever been a time when you show that you love God? Yes. Uh, at 5 o'clock, 530, or, uh, 5.30, 5.20, whenever you arrived here, you were testifying to the fact that the Holy Spirit indwells within you. Because the Holy Spirit moved you to do a particular work, a good work, and that is to come and worship with the saints. Okay, <clears throat> Friends, what's the importance of this teaching? You might say, well, this is purely um, an exercise of doctrine. And I hope you don't think that. However, if it simply is an exercise of doctrine, it should lead to contemplation. To contemplate our God and what he has done for us in salvation. But also, it teaches us, saints, that the doctrine of the Trinity is not to be divorced from everyday living. The doctrine of the Trinity is not to be divorced from everyday living. If you think that the Trinity is boring, that you don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Because the doctrine of the Trinity is not merely for us to gaze upon, right, and to worship in light of, but also the doctrine of the Trinity informs our moral character and who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ. These virtues allow us to live the divine life because the divine persons dwell within us. We can live the divine life. We can live the way God has prescribed for us to live because God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are indwelling our hearts and our souls. That is to say, saints, the life of heaven, it doesn't begin in heaven, but the life of heaven begins here on earth. This is why we are citizens of heaven, but it doesn't mean that when we reach heaven, then now we begin the life of heaven. But rather, the life of heaven is right now. The life of heaven has begun. It has has intruded into this earthly realm. Okay, As the Son and the Spirit indwell the believer, the believer's human nature is raised and elevated to a godly mode of living. The theological gift of faith, which is wisdom, enables the believer to participate in the relation that the Son has with the Father. And the theological gift of hope and love enabled the believer to participate in the relation that the Holy Spirit has with the Father. What this means, saints, is that we participate in the life of the Trinity. We love the way the Son, or rather, we love the way, we know the way that the Son knows the Father in a creaturely way. And we love the way the Father and the Son love each other. Because the Holy Spirit, which is love, indwells within us. We participate, saints, in the life of the Trinity because the Trinitarian persons are indwelling within us and they are beginning a resemblance within our souls. They're causing us to be like them, moving us to be like them. This is what Paul means when he says in Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Because we are sons in God, we can cry out to our Father. The indwelling persons begin, which we will talk about very soon when we talk about union with Christ, is the creature's deification. This is what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.4, by which he has granted us the precious and great, very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. 
John Owen says this concerning this verse, we partake of the divine nature by virtue of the promises by which the spirit infuses new habits into the redeemed sinner. We just talked about this. What are these new habits? The theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. The theological virtues enable us to begin to live as God and be like God. They cause us to resemble the Son and the Spirit. Now, in closing, friends, how do they grow? Quickly, how do they grow? How can we grow these theological virtues? Can they be grown? Yes. In fact, saints, if you had the virtues in all of their capacities, then heaven actually wouldn't, you know, be something latter, but it'd be something beginning now, and it would never come. You would never sin, never again. But God gives us these virtues, and they gradually are raised up. So how do they grow? Number one, pray. Through prayer. And when you pray, pray that God would enable you to grow in these virtues. I mean, do you want to be a better person at work? Do you want to not have an attitude? Uh, do you not, do you not want to do these things that cause you to live and look as someone who's not a Christian? Pray that God would give to you and heighten up rather, heighten, if you are a saint of God, heighten faith, hope, and love. Pray that God would cause you to cease to love the things of this world and raise up the virtue of love so that you can love spiritual things. Love reading your word. Love family worship. Love coming to church. Love praying. These things. Love coming to the supper. Pray that you will do the will of God. The things that you don't want to do when you're tired. The moment when you don't want to do them, pray, God, give me the desire and the will. Raise up hope within me and love within me to do the things that you want me to do. Here's another one. Confess sin more intensely. Confess your sins more intensely. And when you do, and what I mean by that is simply, not simply, but there's a lot to it. Um, but it's knowing your sin. But also, as John Owen would say, knowing the trails that led you to the sin. Knowing the things that led you to this sin. And, and, and sin could be anything from the grosses of sin to just being uh, uh, mean when you shouldn't be mean. Saying things out of spite. Being more grateful for God's gift of mercy. When was the last time you just contemplated the mercy of God? Giving more attention during the preached word. When you, I mean, this, this, is, one, this is one area of, um, of, of worship um, where we see God is giving to us and heightening us faith, hope, and love. Well, if God at this moment promises to give us grace to heighten faith, hope, and love within us, then that is more important than the president giving the state of union address, than your mama calling you, telling you, come over here right now, I need to tell you something, than anyone and anything in this world. I'm telling you, saints, that there is something actually happening when the preached word goes forth. We'll talk about that um, in the last Sunday of the month during a sermon. But God is giving us special grace. And what he's doing is he's raising up the faith to believe, to know God, heightening our love for him, and also bending and moving our wills 
And lastly, saints, praying to receive more of Christ at the supper. Praying that you will receive all of Christ, all of his benefits, that you will come to the supper with a more, um, with a faith that is more intense, with a love that is more intense. These are the ways in which faith, hope, and love are heightened. You can also add um, acts of charity, acts of love, just just being a good person, um, which is something that's very hard to do. I was at a Yankee and um, Angel game recently, and one of the things I told Leela is, you know, it's very, it's very rare nowadays. I'm wearing a Yankees jersey. We're in Anaheim. You would think that whoever's wearing a Yankee jersey, the, the first thing you do is you smile at them. You know, like, hey, we're in the foxhole right now. We're in the war, but we're on the same team. If something goes down, I can trust that you got me, I got you. You know, no one smiled at me. You know, I'm trying to give my smiles to everyone. I'm happy I'm even there. Um, but don't, don't underestimate just acts of love. Just simple acts of kindness that go a long way. That the further you do them, the more, the more, um, love you will exemplify. I mean, this is one of the things we love, uh, about our brother Dustin, right? It seems like, I mean, it would be strange for us to see him with an attitude. <laughs> To see him not be mean, <laughs> to always have a smile is something that we are accustomed to. Uh, and this is something that I'm sure has grown over time with him. And this is something that we can do as well, saints, um, not only with ourselves, but also in our workforce and all that. So you see that the theological gifts of our virtues of faith, hope and love, um, they go a long way because they teach us how to live like God. Let's pray.